welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Welcome to another episode of A Congruent Life, where we're exploring authenticity and congruence and sharing inspirational stories of people living into their passions. My name is Andy Gray. Thanks for joining in with us wherever you might be. This is episode number 17 of A Congruent Life. In this episode, we're hearing from Jonathan Goldman, who was a medical practitioner in Boston, found himself having a profound transformative experience in a remote Brazilian jungle, and then ended up in a protracted legal struggle with the U.S. government over religious freedom, and won. Here's Jonathan. I'm talking today with Jonathan Goldman, who practices transformational energy healing. Jonathan, welcome to A Congruent Life. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure. Maybe let's just start by giving a little bit of background about what it is that you do. So maybe first, what is transformational energy healing? Well, let me start by just saying how it came about. I think it's easier to understand maybe from the bottom up. I was trained as an acupuncturist. I started studying acupuncture in 1975 when acupuncture was not known by hardly anybody in, in the United States. I lived in Boston at that time. And I practiced acupuncture a lot, studied a lot, worked very, very hard for 12 years until I went to Brazil in December 1987. When I got to Brazil, uh, I discovered, much to my conscious surprise, that I actually had a, a healing ability that was underneath and trying to inform my acupuncture, but that I'd never consciously been aware of. And I, I came to call it a spiritual healing channel. And I discovered this through doing spiritual ritual and ceremonies, not specifically aimed at that, but aimed at my own healing, my own self-transformation. I guess you could say as sort of a sidebar bonus to that, I discovered that I had a connection with dimensions beyond this one and seemed like consciousnesses, awarenesses, what came to be called entities, beings, guides, however you want to call it, that... uh Maybe I had heard talk of in some of the circles I ran around with, but never really had applied it to myself or really given it much thought or much credence. But there they were talking to me in my dreams and waking me up in the middle of the night and radiating vibration through my hands and through my whole body that I knew was authentic because I couldn't even have made it up if I had tried. And that started me on a path of healership, which was different. I've contrast that to a path of practitionership. Uh, I had become a good, competent practitioner of Chinese medicine, and that was never enough for me. And I guess in, in terms of your question about authenticity, too, that I would say that the one inbuilt thing in me always has been I've never been satisfied with enough. Nothing has, has ever been, except recently now, everything is good enough for me now, but earlier in my life... Uh, I had a drive in me always to move beyond the norm. And so the norm for me had become acupuncture. And 
had a very large practice in Boston, and by the standards of my culture, huh, I was very successful. But it wasn't enough for me. I was bored and I was restless. And I think that created the internal space, the internal conditions that then allowed that breakthrough, which was not an easy thing to endure the breakthrough of the re, or re or I would say the reorientation of my energy bodies, the redirecting of my inner trajectory uh, from inside myself and doing the work I've been doing to actually connecting with other levels and other other realms. Huh? So that began in February 1988, a study, an internal study in me. I went back home. I still, I had two children. I had a full acupuncture practice. And so I decided, well, I'll keep doing that until so the next thing shows up. And the next thing started to show up organically in the middle of my practice. New things started happening. And I'd hear voices telling me what, what acupuncture treatments to do, where before it had been a mental process in me. I started falling down in my meditations and I, I thought at one point, well, this must look like that old movie, The Exorcist, you know, twisting around and was like, I was like bread being kneaded to, into a new form. Gradually, from the inside out, I began to be taught, I've realized in retrospect, a whole new way of looking at the human energy, what I came to call the human energy vehicle. Right? Some people call it the aura or the use other names for it. And I realized that I was being taught piece by piece as I developed and as I opened myself more and more consciously through meditation, through spiritual work, and through my own, the own inner transformation of my own pain, my own need for healing. As that was, it was a parallel track to then what I was able to access and see in other people. 15 years down the road, I realized that I had been actually given a system. It wasn't for me that somebody like, as some people say, would downloaded something to me. No, it was piece by piece, step by step, opening to see a little more, feel a little more, put things together and realizing then in retrospect, oh my God, for the last 10 years, somebody's been giving me a coherent system of uh, understanding how humans are put together from the spiritual energetic level. And then I began to write it down. And eventually, that combination of the grounded energetic work that acupuncture affords with the more uh, expanded, less discernible, except by some people, work of spiritual healing, those, those levels began to come together, began to make an amalgam of a type of energetic healing work that preceded now energy medicine is 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 the big new thing uh now it's called energy medicine and i came to call it transformational energy healing because the word transformation for me implies something that is a process rather than an event and so the healing that i do and that i teach involves mostly uh, a level of consciousness and then the people who learn how to do it apply their own skills 
within that new awareness. So I have people come to me who are massage therapists and acupuncturists and doctors and nurses and psychotherapists and lawyers and teachers and parents and people who are looking to, so to speak, spiritualize their own energy bodies, up their own vibrational rate, if you want to use that term. And within that, then allow their work, whatever that work is, to become aligned and commensurate with their own new level of awareness. That's a long answer to your question. <laughs> that sounds like quite a journey. <laughs> yeah, it's been quite a journey. It's been it, it has been quite a journey. What I what I understand is that there are are uh, many kinds of of uh, healers. Uh, one kind that I am, and that the people who come to me are, are the people who through their own healing have discovered their own healership, so to speak. The archetype that I relate to is what's called the wounded healer. I understand what it's like to go through a healing process because I've been through a lot of them myself. And so it gives me patience and gives me perspective. I'm not the healer who, you know, when I was two years old, started picking up little bunnies and healing them and <laughs> that wasn't me. I, I, I worked it hard. I got worked really, really, really hard to arrive at a point where I can say, you know, I know a few things and and I, I am given to see more and more every day. But uh, that's my perspective, right? So, yeah, it has been quite a journey. It still is. That was exactly the point that I wanted to ask a bit more about. You told the story of going to Brazil and having this kind of experience and then and then coming home. That must have required a, quite a bit of awareness and clarity to be able to say, okay, I'm an acupuncturist. I had this pretty profound experience that maybe I don't completely understand at this point. But something in you had enough clarity and wisdom to say, okay, I'm going to embark on this different kind of healership. Yeah. It's a very good question because I would actually say if I can claim any credit for anything that has happened around me or through me, it's that I kept saying yes. And I think actually on that path of what you're calling authenticity, uh, congruency, really our option is to say yes or no. You know, we're presented with the options. Because we have an inner being that's calling us and we have a karma and we have a, a plan before we come to earth. And so we're going to be presented with the options if we make ourselves available. And then we just get to say yes or no. So, yeah, I said yes. Well, I knew a couple things. I had done a lot of therapy. I'd done like 11 years of therapy straight. And so I knew my craziness pretty well. And so I knew that what was happening was not psychosis. That was actually uh, pretty good because a lot of people who start to have some of the experiences that I have, some of them go crazy, right? Some of people lose their 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 moorings in in their ability to operate, and many people get very frightened because it's so new and it's so weird and it's so outside the norm. None of that happened to me. I actually because I I from when I was a child, I've had this I would say at times desperate prayer to not be bored. Can I tell you the story when I made that prayer? Sure. Okay, I was eight years old. One of these things I remember totally clearly from my childhood. I lived in a suburban town right outside the, the city of Detroit. Actually, I lived a half a block from the Detroit Zoo. It was a town called Royal Oak, which at that time was a mixture of working class and, and middle class neighborhood. 
town out right right near Detroit, and um, this was 1958, right? I was born in 1950, so the famous 50s, the time when everybody in my neighborhood, everybody in in my parents' circle was in that place of be, being professionals and starting to. Uh, many of these people my parents peers went on to be very very wealthy business people they were the people who in like in the in the 60s and 70s became very wealthy and we were part of that crowd and i'm standing on the, at this moment i'm on the front lawn of our suburban house and I'm standing under an apple tree we had an apple tree that had these little green apples they were about the size of maybe golf balls and about 20 feet away from me is a telephone pole and uh, I was a Detroit Tigers fan, so I was imagining myself as a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. At that time, it would have been Jim Bunning, who actually turned out to be a right-wing, very crazy senator, but he was a great pitcher. So I imagine myself, I'm Jim Bunning, and I'm throwing apples at the catcher's mitt on the, the telephone pole. And as I'm there flinging these apples... All of a sudden, one of these things happened where I just had this awareness and my little eight-year-old consciousness of my suburban world. And I, I don't know how to describe it better than that. It was all like a, a, a shift in my consciousness where I just had this feeling spreading out over this world that I was inhabiting. And I saw with total clarity how unbelievably boring it was. And that my future, if I stayed in that milieu, doing what I was supposed to do, which was supposed to be a lawyer like my dad and go on and be a famous lawyer. If I had done that, I could – I don't know how, how an eight-year-old understood this, but it was totally clear to me, wow, that is unbelievably boring. And I made a prayer, but I, it wasn't a prayer like getting down on my knees you know, in front of an altar. I jumped out of my heart in that moment, oh, Lord, don't let me be bored. And I can honestly say that that prayer has been answered in my life. And I've collaborated with that prayer by saying yes. So many, many years later, and there are many along the way, many moments when I said yes. I was in the student movement. I was in the leftist movement. I was demonstrations and all that kind of a thing And in the 60s and then studying acupuncture when nobody knew what it was and most people were mocking it as a ridiculous thing. And then leading up to this time in Brazil, taking a step into a, a world of spiritual mysticism, drinking a tea that at that point was called daimi, that now is better known as ayahuasca, opening up my consciousness and, and going into therapy and doing all these kinds of things, this inner quest to, to find my, who I was amidst all that impact, all the thought forms I was carrying from that time and from all the things that had happened to me. And so simultaneous with that, I really am going to heal myself. I'm not going to live in misery and I don't want to be bored. I ended up on this path that I ended up on. What an amazingly simple prayer and an amazingly profound prayer, especially as an eight-year-old. Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, the truth is I think actually all true prayers are very simple. There's a book, a very beautiful book by Annie Lamott. It's called um, Help Wow Thanks. Basically, she says that's what your prayer is, and I agree with her. You know, most prayers are just like that, like very sincere and very deep in our hearts. They don't have to involve anything formal. 
I think the formality is is to allow people to have a common language, right? So we can all be in church or we can all be in temple somewhere together and we can all say the same words. And that's good because humans are good. We get, we join hearts. But the prayer is very simple. Help me. Help me. I need help. I don't know what to do. I'm lost. You know, I, I, I this is way beyond me. I'm up against it, whatever it is. And for me, the key to healing and the key to the response that humans can elicit from those divine forces is just that sincere prayer for help. So, Jonathan, what would you consider to be some of your notable failures and what have they taught you? I was a terrible student in college. I don't know. I don't know if I consider it a failure. Certainly, my wife considered it a failure. <laughs> I was, I was terrible. I, I was lazy, and uh, I would say my, my, what that relates to a failure, a weakness is I'm, I'm, I'm a. It's easy for me to get distracted. I'm a procrastinator. Uh, I don't like ending things. Uh, I think that's based on my history, and so that difficulty. That's been a constant thing in finishing things and in organizing myself to to uh, do what I say I'm going to do, right? So it gets tied up in integrity. So I have had moments when I would say I didn't demonstrate a lack of integrity because I promised to do something and I didn't do it. And so the confrontation with that tendency in me led me to be able to actually accomplish some things. You know what I mean? So in the, in like having to say, oh, wow, I know that about myself. I am just a lazy person sometimes. Like I don't like to finish things. Made me surround myself with people who are not like that. And so I've learned, that learned, taught me to collaborate because I also was very used to being very uh, internal and doing things myself. So the recognition of my own weaknesses led me to be able to collaborate, which in and of itself has been a huge learning for me, an incredible healing for me to learn to collaborate with other people and rely on other people for their expertise and put myself in a situation where what I want to do is not always what happens. And so then having to learn to trust and to watch and to be in process, all of that's come out of the recognition, I think, of those weaknesses in me and the times earlier in my life where I didn't follow through and, uh, you know, miss some opportunities that I, that I could have had. I give you an example. One of these things, you know, how the things turn out in the end better, but in the meantime, they look terrible. I live in Ashland, Oregon, right? And we live in the country, we live on 20 acres of land. Also, I'm part of, and the leader of a spiritual community, on a spiritual path called the Santo Daime, which is centered in Brazil. It's a Brazilian religion, spiritual path centered in the Amazon forest. I had a vision, was given a vision many years ago of a church building, a ceremonial building on my land, exactly where it was supposed to be, what it was supposed to look like. And this was the days before um, email. It was just before the, the computer technology explosion. The land next to me was necessary for me to buy in order to build this thing that Spirit was showing me, uh, was owned by some people who were also in our community. And I said to them, well, will you, when you, if you go to sell it, tell me, because I want to see if I can put together a, a group to buy it. They tell me they're going to sell it. I wrote a letter 
rather than calling the person I knew that wanted to help me buy it, I wrote a letter because I was shy and I didn't believe in my own abundance and I didn't believe yet that it really in the power of like affirming what you want and being grateful for it. And it's a whole thing that I've learned. So I wrote this letter and I sort of sent it through the mail. Two weeks later, the land sold. Two weeks later, she calls me and says, let's buy it. And so what I learned is that the spiritual world can lay it all out for us, can you know lay the feast out for us. It's us that has to choose to step up to the table, and in that time I didn't. In the end, it actually worked out very, very well because we live in the universe of one more chance, and they gave me another chance to put a building on a different place on my land, which we now have, and it's where we do ceremonies. So the whole thing was an incredible learning. I learned my weakness. It led me into a whole new understanding of the role of the belief in abundance in healing and in the conduct of life on earth. And in the end, it led me to agree to build a building in a different place, not on that same land, which was bought by somebody else. And in the end, it's worked out very, very, very beautifully. To me, that's an example of, of what you're asking, huh? a, a weakness that then I learned something from and actually then turned into a later strength. Uh, you talked a bit about the spiritual community that you lead. Can you maybe talk a bit about the formation of that and maybe some reflections on the, the process by which that came together? I think along the lines of your work, I went to Brazil that first time, December 1987, January 1988. The man who took me there was a Brazilian man whose name was uh, José, right? In, in Spanish it would be José, José Rosa. He was, had been my psychotherapist and um, a man who I was loved very much and was very grateful to. Basically, he had, between he and my wife, I would say they had saved my sorry ass from the misery that I had been in for so many years. And he said at some point, we're going to go to Brazil and we're going to go to the spiritual community and we're going to drink this tea. And my trust of him, my love for him, I said, yes, I didn't know anything about it. That first time, my life changed, my health changed. I, I described one small part of it, the spiritual channel. Many other things happened. After we came back, six months after we came back from that trip, he discovered that he had pancreatic cancer and was very, very close to death. He then went back to the same community that we had been to, which is a place called Visconjigimawa, which is uh, about four hours from Rio de, Rio de Janeiro in the mountains of the Atlantic rainforest. And he went back there himself, was healed from that pancreatic cancer through spiritual means, we had no no Western medical intervention, and he called me then in January in uh, July 1989 and said, "We're going to go to the jungle. I'm going to present myself to the man who is the leader, the spiritual leader of the the Santo Daimi. Santo Daimi means Santo means holy. Daimi is the name given to the tea that we drink, also to the religion itself, also to the invocation. Daimi, or in Spanish, Dame, means give me." So he said, I'm going to present myself to this man whose name is Sebastian, or it be Sebastian in English, who is the leader of the path because uh, now that I've been healed from my own cancer, I know that my job is to serve others. And I'm going to present myself to him and offer myself as a person to help. Because Jose was a, a, a doctor and a, a psychotherapist, a psychiatrist, a healer himself. And of course, I said, well, hell no, I'm not going to the jungle. Why would I go to the jungle? I'm getting ready to move to Oregon. I, it's ridiculous. I'm, not, I, I'm absolutely not going with you. So, of course, a month later, I was going with him. <laughs> we were on a, a canoe in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, traveling two days by dugout canoe to get to a village in the middle of the forest. 
while I was there, I had no intention to become a member of any path. And it seems to me also, in, in question of your question about authenticity, the people I know that have ended up living authentic lives would never have predicted what their lives would look like. It comes as a surprise, and then, as I said, you say yes. At least that's been my experience. There's not one thing in my life on any level of my life that was as I thought it would be, and everything is better. So when I was in the middle of the jungle, I realized here I was. You know, I'm I'm a six foot three white middle class American professional among very poor five foot two brown. Indian people speaking a language that that sounded to me like birds in the trees, and I was a, a very odd thing to them. <laughs> I, I, don't, I wasn't the first white person there. There were white people in the community, but I was definitely the weirdest that they'd seen. Americans are very uh, funny to Native peoples, right, where our mannerisms and our way we do, uh, conduct ourselves. So there I was, realizing that I was in love. I was in love. I was in love the way that on a different different way, but the way that I was in love with my wife. I had to be with her. It didn't matter to me what we were going to do. In the same way, here I was in the middle of the jungle in this totally strange, weird place with strange, weird people, not knowing who the heck I was anymore. And I knew that I had to um, to follow this somehow. But I had no clue, no idea, no plan that I would start a, a spiritual community or or do any of the things we did. If I had known truly, I wouldn't have done it. Because it was has been a gigantic amount of work and, and and put my family at times in jeopardy, put my my own freedom in jeopardy down the road. So I never would have done it. So I was actually, in retrospect, very grateful for the the tiny increments of information that I've been given. Because I'm glad I did everything, and but I wouldn't have done it if I had known. So there I was in the middle of the jungle, and I said, "Well, okay, I don't know how this is going to work out. It's seven thousand miles away from home." My wife at that time was absolutely not interested in pursuing any kind of spiritual path. And we had two children, and I knew I wasn't going to leave them. So I, I didn't know how I was going to navigate any of this. And I think also for me, that's a quality of an authentic life. If you know everything about how to do it, probably you're following somebody else's plan. And so to be faced with the question of, wow, I live in Boston, I have a medical practice. And here I am in the middle of the jungle. Wow. Holding that dilemma, I think actually, for me, it was part of the, it's part of transformation. And also, for me, is part of the uh, authenticity because, as I said, I think it, it, when I really think I know what's going on, it's usually that I'm making it up in my head rather than I really do. So I came back. That was September of 1989. In June of 1990, my family and I were getting ready to move from Boston to Oregon, and I was felt called and said yes to becoming an initiate on that spiritual path of the Santo Daime. We moved here to Oregon with no plan to do anything other than be here, and three years later, I found myself in Brazil again helping Jose lead a workshop of people who were going to do what I had done a number of years ago. We had changed the program, improved it, and learned a lot. In that same community, when the question came up about me bringing some daimi, the tea, in my suitcase back here to Oregon to let other people uh, experience a little bit of what I had experienced. And I was very ambivalent, but I said yes. 
because I felt like people deserved. There are some people who needed to do that who were not going to be as crazy as I was to every few months go to Brazil and and but they deserve to to have healing that they might not otherwise get. So I said, okay. I brought some daimi back, began doing small ceremonies here, knowing very little, not still not speaking Portuguese. Now I speak Portuguese, not knowing what to do or but following a a, a ceremonial a ritual form best we could and eventually eventually and then more people came and then we took some people to brazil and it started what in the in the daimi world is called a point of met a couple times a month drank daimi and did our little ceremonies and we grew and grew and grew and grew in 1996 the man who's the leader of the daimi a man named alfredo who lives in the jungle came here and we then opened a church with the first official church in the united states And then we continued on doing our ceremonies. The, at that time, what we were doing was illegal in the sense that the United States government had an opinion that what we were doing was taking drugs. That's not our reality, and I don't even think that it's the objective reality, but I understood their opinion. That culminated May 20th, 1999, when the police federal agents DEA and FBI agents, nine agents came to my house, held my children at gunpoint, uh, ransacked my house, confiscated a large amount of dime that we had received that day, took me to jail where I spent one day, let me out. And that started a 10-year process that culminated eventually April 18th, 19, 2009, a month shy of 10 years, when a federal judge in Oregon liberated the daimi and declared that what we were doing was completely legal and protected under the First Amendment and under a law called the Freedom of Religion Restoration Act and uh, freed us from any possibility of government interference. That was a huge undertaking, very, very expensive and very complicated, involved many lawyers and many permutations of many decisions and Many, many, many conversations, and you can imagine, right? It's a big undertaking to sue the federal government, and that's our legacy. We are now free, and there are many people who, by implication, also are free, although they haven't been declared formally free, but we've established the atmosphere of freedom for our religion and actually for for made a step, right? It was a contribution to the, the human need for freedom. So actually, I would say if I'm proud of anything in my life, it's that, not just because we took care of ourselves which, and, and our children and grandchildren, which is important, but also contributed a tiny bit to freedom in general, right, which I think is essential for humans to be able to experience. That's all quite a journey through many twists and turns. How does that all translate into what you're doing in the world today? I have a number of jobs. One is that I, um, I teach transformational energy healing under the aegis of the Essential Light Institute. Essential Light Institute is our professional institute that I travel and teach and do workshops and seminars and finishing a book that is the textbook of transformational energy healing. So that's one aspect. And the other thing is my wife and I are the leaders of this dynamic community in Ashland where we have an average of four ceremonies a month and we are the leaders among the leaders we are the spiritual leaders of that community so both of those are full-time jobs if you know what I mean 
And they're overlapping in that they're all about the same thing. They're all about bringing light to earth and helping people to wake up to their own spiritual nature. And they just are different expressions of that. One a little more. Daimi is a religion. It's a spiritual path. It has a particular form. And the Essential Light Institute is a a healing work, a spiritual healing work. It's not religious. It doesn't actually fits more into the category of non-religious spirituality. So I, I walk these two worlds, both of which are valid, both of which are very demanding and very beautiful. How can our listeners engage with you? We have the Essential Light Institute, essentiallight.org. Also, I have um, now a number of YouTube demonstrations. Of, we just put up, the. Uh, I have these little two, three-minute things. Somebody sat down with me, sort of like we're doing now, except they filmed it and asked me these little questions. You know, what is healing? What is transformational energy healing? What is prayer like that? So they're on YouTube now, these little two-minute things. And then there's two long talks that I've given, public talks that I've given. So like that, the name of our church is Church of the Holy Light of the Queen, CHLQ. So if people want to actually find out about us, they can send an email to chlqcomm at gmail.com. The Essential Light Institute is public in the sense that anybody can come and we encourage people to come. I think what we're teaching has some value to some people, has the seminars we do, the workshops are are experiential and um, designed to for people to experience for themselves in their own bodies this transformational energy healing and the the power of spiritual light which is an actual authentic non-metaphorical force they feel it in themselves but you can also go online santodaimi.org is um, the website of the the religion in general there's lots of stuff on online and if someone feels called and they feel they want to come then they have to have an interview about their health and about their their state of mind and whether they're serious. We're not interested in that realm of having people who are just hopping from one thing to another. It's much more serious than that and much more challenging than that. So I'm saying they're just two different things. Anybody can come to a Essential Light workshop. Please come. Something that's growing. It's something that we're offering to the world. And the Daimi is a spiritual path for people to come and check it out if they feel called to do so. Thanks, Jonathan. Is, is there a final thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with regarding authenticity? Somebody said the other day, we were actually in a ceremony, and uh, was a very beautiful thing that was said. They said that fear and faith are two ends of the same cord, and the one you choose will pull you on a path where you will get the full experience and support for that choice. So if your choice is to fear, which in terms of this authentic life uh, question means staying with what you know, being confronted with the opportunity to heal yourself, to go deep into your authentic self, exploring your authentic self that takes time and effort and layers and layers and layers of transformation, to be given that opportunity and say no is a choice. To me, it's a choice for fear. It's a choice for the for um, business as usual. Faith, which is an authentic uh, vibration that lives actually in your heart, in the right in front of your heart, 
will, by choosing consciously to engage with that vibration, you are in, you're, you are invoking the antidote to faith. And that will lead you on a completely different path. The trick about faith is faith, by its nature, is not going to tell you what's going to happen. Because faith demands that you know that somebody knows what's going on, even though it's not you and maybe not especially you. Especially not you. But by choosing faith, and faith is not a, the province of a religion, right? It's an absolute crime that there are, are religions that call themselves the faith. Faith is a vibration. It has nothing to do with religion. Choosing the vibration of faith to guide you, you will be led into very beautiful adventures. And you, and, and you will be led authentically into your authentic self. So it actually comes down to a very simple choice. right? Fear or faith. Fear will keep us uh, stuck, keep us uh, allegedly safe, although not really. And faith will take us into realms that may feel unsafe because of their are unknown, but in fact you have lots of help available to you. Lots of help, spiritual help. The right people will show up. If you need some help, the right therapies will show up. The vitamins jump off the shelf into your hands. Uh, your friends will tell you the one thing you need to know. Uh, you're, you'll be, have the opportunity for forgiveness and all the things that you need to make your life uh, an authentic representative of who you are. Representation, right? Authentic representation of who you are and what you came to earth to do. Jonathan Goldman, thank you very much for spending this time with us and sharing some of those stories. Thank you, Andy. It's been a great pleasure. Good luck with, uh, with your project. It's very worthy. Thanks very much. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Jonathan. Since this is episode number 17, you can find the show notes for this episode at acongruentlife.net slash 17. If you're enjoying these conversations, please take a quick moment to navigate that clunky iTunes interface and leave a positive review for the A Congruent Live podcast in the iTunes store. You can find a link on our homepage or just search for the word congruent. Thanks again for being here and listening to A Congruent Life. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at a congruent life.net. See you next time.